Ladies and gents, Tyson Popplestone here. This is the Pop Culture Podcast on Christmas Eve of 2021. Man, what a bloody year that was, hey? Tell you what, we've all had a uh, all had an interesting little year regardless of where you are in the world. Exciting time, little fresh start just around the corner. Here's a little treat just to just to send you off. We are joined by anthropologist and sociologist Nathan Hugh Robert. This guy is a uh, this guy's a switched on unit. I I wanted to get him on just to talk to him about how things work and why things work the way they work, and also to learn a little bit about what the heck anthropology and sociology is and how it can be beneficial to our lives and to the lives of others. This guy this guy practices what he preaches. The first time I met him, I was I was interested about how interested he was in everything. He, would, he just seemed to sit back and observe and um, have some really insightful comments when he spoke. So I thought, man, this guy knows a few things that a lot of people don't. And uh, I wanted to get him on and, and pick his brain. So that's exactly what we did. It was actually a, it was an awesome conversation, really insightful bloke, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting him back on in the future. So Nathan, Hugh, Robert, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, sit back and enjoy this one. And uh, hey, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. So what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. What's going on up your way? Um... Not much at the moment. Uh, well, not much, but a lot at the same time. Um, I've got family over for Christmas, um, and that, as it always does, brings a lot of not responsibility, but just uh, you know, committing time, making arrangements. My brother's visiting, um, so I'm just showing him the city. Um, so busy, just finished up work for the year, which is nice. Um, but keeping on top of everything. Yeah, I get it, man. It's a funny time of the year. It's interesting. Where's your brother from? Oh, he's living over in, is it Denmark or am I making that up? He's living over in Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Yeah. Beautiful. So he's just back for the Christmas break. Hey. Yeah. You just come to come to visit. Awesome, man. What do you uh, what do you got planned with the family for the next couple of weeks? Um, so we, my mom's really into Christmas. She loves doing well. I guess the whole family is, but I think her in particular. She really drives it all. Um, so we're doing, you know, a big Christmas day with full lunch and roast, just various roast meats, um, and really just spending with the family. That's kind of what we do do every year, just uh, family time. Um, but a lot of food, and a lot of preparation. Yeah, you do Christmas planning, right. Planning gifts very, very carefully so that no one feels left out or hard done by. That's <laughs> yeah, a good way to do it. It's a good way every to do year. it. We have yeah. like a limit on the amount that we're allowed to spend on our presents. So it's all right, no more than like 25 bucks each because otherwise – um, you know, I'll end up going hard on my mum and forgetting to buy my dad a present. It just gets uncomfortable yeah. for everyone. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the way to do it. I mean, I think I think there should be, yeah, you do need those kind of rules in place. I think the more structured the better with Christmas I, buying, else else it gets out of control. It's so true, man. It's so true. Dude, before we uh before we properly get started, I wanted to talk to you because last time I saw you was last Thursday night. Um Dude, that was a we. So we uh, we were both down at Bobby Peel's doing some uh, some open mic comedy. Thank God you left before I got up on stage. Right. But um, <laughs> dude, that was a uh, that was a tough little gig that night, wasn't it? There's nothing yeah. uh, there's nothing pretty about being up in front of a room full of comedians. No, it's hard. I was saying to someone um, 
after that gig, being going up in front of a room of comedians, it's no well, it's nerve wracking, first of all, because you know that everyone is gonna judge you straight away because they're comedians, you're a comedian, they know that you think you're funny, and um, they think they're funny, so. They're really judging your jokes quite harshly before you even start. Um, and then on top of that, they're probably thinking about their own sets and what they're going to say up on stage. So they're nervous. They're not really concentrating on the jokes. So it's difficult to make them laugh. But if you do make a room of comedians laugh, it's, I'd say, one of the better feelings because then you know you've really got a good joke if you can make that room crack. See, that's a way um, better attitude than I have about it because I was there last week and I was like, this is such a waste of time. No one wants to be here. I don't want to be here. And it was funny because I had a set list in my mind. I was like, all right, I'm going to get up. And I had the jokes. And about five minutes before I got up, I was like, stuff it. I'm doing all brand new stuff. And I've learned that. <laughs> I've learned that so many times that that is just the one way that you don't do comedy because like the jokes I ended up doing, it was literally stuff I'd never even put pen to, pen to paper on to to try and navigate my way through. I'd, I was like yeah. trying to formulate what a punchline might be about two minutes before I got up on stage. And uh, I got up on stage and there was there was a lot of blank fla- uh, blank faces. And I was like, oh, I really yeah. need it. I really need to learn this lesson and, uh, and start yeah. putting in a little bit of preparation. It's funny. It's a completely different attitude in a room. Like when I'm in front of a room full of people who I know are there to watch comedy, I'm like, all right, mm. for whatever reason, I'm, I'm just inspired to do it. But I always find it hard. Like that's mm-hmm. a, your attitude that you just explained then makes so much more sense or at least inspires so much more to go, all right, if I can make this audience laugh, then yeah. I'm on to a winner. Because I'm always like, oh, well, there's no point even trying to make these guys laugh because we're all just waiting for our shot. That, that, the mental kind of process that you go through or mental journey that you go through before a gig like that or any gig really it's always so turbulent. You know, I, I, I have the same thing. If, I, if I'm waiting to go on stage and I've got a feeling like the gig is going to be a bad gig, I'll definitely have that the thought of like, oh, I'm just going to leave. Like, I'm going to pull out. Like, I don't, there's no point in me doing this. It's a waste of time. Like, shouldn't have come or it's just going to be a miserable time. And I think that what I try and do is just, push myself to get on like because I, I figure that if I can do those gigs those really really uncomfortable gigs then I can be comfortable at almost any gig mm. um, but that you you have so so many thoughts that come in so many thoughts that like well up and brew up and you're just like I've got, I've got to leave I've got to get out of here I just can't do this I can't like I can't um, and to kind of settle that storm or get on top of your thoughts is it's really really hard in that context um and you do um you do start to pull back in fact i was reading something a while back about doing something that's important but really stressful um a psychologist wrote an article on it and they were saying that one of the uh, like a key sign that you're doing something stressful or one of the reactions to doing something really stressful is um, just pulling back and kind of saying, well, I'm not, I don't want to do this. Like it's not worth it. I don't see any value in it and I'm just going to pull out. There's no point. You essentially just give up. And it's kind of a, it's a a defense mechanism uh, against the stress. 
it's your body kind of retracting, trying to protect mm. you from the stress of it. Um, it's really, really hard. Something that I do to help me get through that is just appreciate how silly the whole situation is. <laughs> like I think about often when you watch interviews with comedians or you listen to interviews with comedians, they'll always go through the kind of when they first started out in comedy and they were doing open mics and they used to bum at all these small bars wherever they performed. And they often re- like retell it in a way that's comical. Like, oh yeah, there used to be like three people in the audience and like, oh, like comedian Mike was there and he used to do that kind of material. And they always talk about it in a kind of sentimental and nostalgic way. Whenever I'm at a gig like we were on Thursday, I kind of look around the room and I just think how silly is this whole thing that it's like (laughs) we're here on a Thursday evening in this room upstairs that no one knows about. (laughs) There's like a room of like essentially just 15 guys, maybe like one woman. We're all going to get up probably 80% of the jokes are going to be dick jokes and then we're all going to leave. Like that's a, it's just a really, really sad situation. And I kind of think like in a few years time, like no matter where I'm at in comedy or if I'm still doing comedy, like those nights or these nights will kind of be the nights I look back on and think like, oh, man, they were just so funny. Like you can't, those are the nights that you do remember. And they're painful at the time. But I kind of try and remind myself that in a few years' time, they won't really matter and there'll be something kind of almost beautiful. Yeah. It's a, it's, man, honestly, it's such a good attitude to have uh, about the stand-up scene because I actually, I, I think I do something fairly similar with you. I definitely, I definitely find comfort in the fact after a bad bomb, going back and listening to the, the you know, some of the best comedians in the world talk about exactly what you just spoke about then. And mm. about how it sort of just blends into this this big beautiful journey towards where they are now, and it's it's also it's like a, it's a nice reminder to to hear these guys and go okay, well, not even the best of these guys are bulletproof. It's sort of a it's kind of a bomb your way to the top kind of a, kind oh, of industry, sure. really, isn't it? And it's yeah. just, but it's yeah. such a humbling way to to find your feet in front of a room full of people who who are embarrassed to be sitting there while <laughs> you're on stage mm. trying to navigate yeah. your way through some bullshit material that just is not yeah. funny yet. And uh, it, yeah, it is, it is really, uh, it is funny. If you can I always think if I can separate the emotion from um, the experience that I have, like I often, so Thursday night I left that room and and for me, the, the hardest part is to listen back to a tape like that, where, you know, mm. you're going to hear your so-called punchlines, and then just complete silence. And it's there's okay, it's okay. cringy when you're on stage, but it's even cringier when you get off and you're in the car Watch by out. yourself trying to figure it all out. And uh, mm. but for me, like just trying to separate the emotion from that and go, okay, like on a practical level, like what are some takeaways? Okay, well, it was a room full of comedians. It was it was very rusty material. It was quite green. Uh, and just trying because there's so many elements that make comedy or stand up comedy work. Like I'm sure you've had this experience where we. I'll, I'll go to a room like that and I'll try something new or I'll try a joke that I've been working out for a while that I know or that I, I think is funny and the audience has given a positive response to, uh, you know, in another occasion. And then you take that to a, a room with a slightly different energy. You know, people might be having yeah. a bit more of a down or of a night 
And uh, for whatever reason, it just falls so flat. So trying to navigate what's a good joke and what's a rubbish joke, it's not, it's not just as easy as like, all right, is it funny or is it not? There's, there's, a, yeah. there's a whole range of elements. And you know those nights where you go into a room and for whatever reason, everyone's just on and you'll say something that's not that funny and it'll just bring the house down. So it's a, yeah. it's a really strange scene that I love trying to navigate. And like this kind of stuff is part of the reason I wanted to talk to you today, because um, like we've, we've only met a few times really, but the conversations I've had with you before gigs are um, not even necessarily or very little to do with comedy most of the time. And mm. uh, I went home and, and spoke to my wife about you and I was saying, I met this bloke, Nathan, he's got this, uh, I, I just, I love your perspective and I'm fascinated by what you do outside of comedy uh, as, mm. as much as I am by what you're doing in the comedy scene. And um, man, I guess there's a, a little bit of a way of introduction into that. You're a, you're a man of many talents, really. But I was, I was fascinated to hear how you explain to people what it is that you do, like with particular relation to your studies. Yeah. Yeah. So I, what we spoke about the other night, it was really, I finished studying last year uh, I completed my honours degree in sociology and anthropology, um, which is often not necessarily a misunderstood degree. Sometimes it is misunderstood, um, but I don't think it's really understood. People don't really don't necessarily understand what anthropology is or what sociology is. Um, and what it entails, a lot of people assume it's something to do with kind of prehistoric studying of fossils or ancient civilizations. And there might be some of that, but uh, in the mainstay, it's not that at all. Um, so anthropology is the study of culture. So basically historically transmitted ideas and beliefs um, that are shared, commonly shared by a group. Um, and those beliefs and ideas then inform our practices and shape the way that we see ourselves and the, uh, and the world. So we anthropologists are studying um, worldviews, how people understand the world, like a good way that I had it put to me by um, someone who's doing their PhD in anthropology. He said that, um, you know, like a dining room table, you can analyze that kind of scientifically or quantitatively by like taking, uh, unpicking the materials and looking into the particles and breaking down the very fibers of the table and trying to understand it that way. But that's not how everyday humans or humans understand a wooden table. You know, we attach meaning to objects. A, a table in your grandmother's dining room might have some real significance to you. You know, it might have, your whole family might have sat there uh, at one point in time and shared special memories uh, around that table. So for you, that dining room table means so much more than just the actual particles of the wood that uh, make up the table. So as anthropologists um, or even sociologists, um, we, our job is really to try and understand or listen to how people conceive of the world 
or how they understand their everyday life mm -hmm. and the things that they take for granted or the things that seem common sense to them, like norms that they don't think about, um, but have such a large influence on how they conduct themselves. So we do in-depth interviews. We do what we call participant observation. So like with comedy, an anthropologist would go to a comedy room, say like an open mic room, and they want to do a, a project on open mic comedians in Melbourne. They would go there, sit in the room, take observations, um, write down notes, what we call field notes, and then they would conduct interviews. You know, they could be lengthy interviews or they could be fairly short. Generally, anthropology tends towards more long and in-depth interviews, sociology, maybe more kind of survey data. But our role is to try and understand why comedians are partaking in comedy, why they want to do open mic comedy, what's kind of motivating them, what are the norms, what are the kind of uh, social mistakes you can make in a comedy room. Um, or you can look at like the economy of um, open mic rooms. There's so many different ways you could look at uh, a group or a culture. Um, mm. So that's what anthropology is. And that's kind of what I've been involved in for the past four years. Yeah. See, this is fascinating to me because the conversation I had with you just a couple of weeks ago was the first time I'd really heard much about anthropology. So I'm hoping yeah. there's a lot of beginners who are who are in the same boat as me listening to this because you're going to get a lot of beginner questions. But it's a fascinating idea of uh, just that observation idea of going in and trying to understand, you know, what it is that's trying to be achieved or why it is we believe the things we believe. Like I understand it's a, it's a broad and deep scope uh, in terms of the, I, I guess everything's included in the study of anthropology really, or is it just, is it the study of sort of a, a human understanding of whatever it is that they're, they're participating in? It's uh, a, it's a, it broad, it's, be, I'm trying to get my head around it. It can be anything. It can be anything. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard about a study. There was a, a classmate of mine who wanted to do a study on toenails wanted to look at toenails, um, people look at stuff like colours, perception of colours. Uh, you could do tattoos or you could even do objects. Some people do the anthropology of objects. Look at how, say something like cobalt, that is in an iPhones, travel across the globe, how they mind, what kind of process they go through and what how, what their engagements like or what contact they have with humans and then study the kind of economies around cobalt. What is it? What's but cobalt? Cobalt's, cobalt is like, um, it's a material that's used to make part of iPhones. Like they use it in um, the batteries and the components of iPhones. Mm -hmm. um, it's just like, a, so I'm not too sure exactly it's like, I think it's a kind of a metal. Um, I'm not too sure, but it's, it's mined in mainly in Central Africa. Cobalt. So, mm -hmm. yeah, anthropology, they would say, is such a broad church. It can encase so many topics. It's really it's not so much a, a topic, but more a method of study, if that makes sense. So it's just a, 
it's a method of study that you can apply to almost any area of interest. Mm-hmm. And are you trying um, to get to a particular outcome or is it different for everything that you're looking at? Like when you, I guess the outcome of going to study a comedian is going to be different to the outcome of studying a toenail, but like when you start yeah. that project or when you start that, that field of study, are you going, all right, well, I'm trying to understand what it is that a comedian's trying to get out of this. Like, a, is there yeah. a, yeah. is there sort of like a common consensus on, on, on what you guys are trying to achieve with your study? There is a, there is a common concept, uh, a fairly common con- uh, consensus. The kind of goal of anthropology, the reason why um, anthropologists still push for it and still think it's valuable is the goal is to really provide a deep understanding. Um, so ethnographic methods is what we use or ethnography is basically writing like a, an in-depth study of something. So traditionally um, ethnographers and anthropologists, and this actually started fortunately in the colonial period when um, colonizers wanted to understand uh, in kind of indigenous communities and the way that they, you know, structured their economies or kind of social riches. And it was a ritual, sorry. Um, they used anthropologists or anthropologists didn't even really exist then. They took other scholars to study these societies so that they could control them you know if we if they could understand the indigenous people then they knew how to you know control them and the colonial project but now the uh, the project of anthropology is really to provide uh, knowledge that is in depth it's particular it's nuanced uh, it provides complexity so if you think about the kind of antithesis of that it's very much um uh, some feels like i mean i don't want to bag, bag on other disciplines but something like um economics for example i mean i know there's a lot of data hubs and going on in economics but traditionally economists have made broad generalizations about populations and the way that populations behave. Um, And what they'll do is they'll gather that knowledge by collecting data. So like survey data. So, you know, you get something like the census is maybe a good example of this. It's like you get a survey and they ask you like, okay, what is your income or like, or personality test like, uh, are you extroverted and so on? And then they make certain assessments and judgments based on that data. They say, okay, well, Tyson lives in this demographic and he's this age and this sex, therefore he might behave like this. Anthropology kind of says that that's an inadequate way to study humans and human behavior. It's it might be adequate, but it's not sufficient. So Mm. it's like, it's good, but maybe not good enough. So what we try and do is um, we actually try and speak to people. So we'll go to, if I wanted to do a study on you and the area you live in, um, say 
we want to con conduct research on home ownership. Um, and they want to uh, create policies around home ownership. Anthropologists and sociologists would say, well, we need to go and speak to people in this demographic. We need to actually find out what's going on in their lives. Why, you know, maybe why they're struggling to repay their home loans. So we would then ask you a series of questions. I mean, for my honors project, which uh, is a relatively small project, I had eight hours worth of interviews. So, and I was only interviewing four people. Wow. So two interviews of people. And um, you're trying to find out basically, you know, what's going on in their life. You know, what are the different, all the different factors that are playing into this one phenomenon that you're playing, uh, you are studying. So say we're looking at home loan repayments and this particular demographic is not paying their home loans. Other disciplines might make assumptions. They say, well, okay, it might be because, I don't know, um, men who are in their 30s are lazy and therefore they don't pay their home loans back. Anthropologists would, the, our goal is to really go in and find out what's, what's the real story. So it's kind mm -hmm. of like journalism, but it's more rigorous and more serious and you are meant to spend a long time with people. I mean, anthropologists, especially of old, and, that, and now as well, if you do your PhD, you have to spend years with your uh, research participants. So it's not about them just going in and taking a survey. It's about going there, living with them, seeing how uh, they conduct their lives, how they understand the world. You essentially are trying to get inside their worldview until their actions and their beliefs make complete sense. Mm. So like a, an example, this is a great example, is um, there was a, a couple who were both anthropologists. Um, they went to, I can't remember the community's name. I think it was somewhere kind of in New Guinea. Um, I could be wrong. But they went there and they were studying the phenomenon of headhunting. So mm -hmm. that's where uh, if someone's in this community, if someone lost a family member or their spouse, if a man lost their wife, that man would go out and chop someone else's head off, kill someone else, which seems crazy right you're like okay well that's that's wild like it's unethical you know why would you know why would you do that it's not necessary it's unjustified and so on so this couple they went to this community and, and lived amongst this community for a long long time and they write about their experience and like what how they felt towards the phenomenon of headhunting and they were initially just opposed it and kind of had that position of like, this doesn't make any sense. And the husband is like, I can't understand why you would do this. And the, the community was saying like, no, it's for us, the death of someone is so tragic that you, you get so angry that the only way that 
you can release the anger is to take the life of someone else. And the and anthropologist was like, okay, I get that, but that's still, you know, that's still crazy. And while they were on the trip, um, the anthropologists, the couple were exploring the area and they were kind of well, they're climbing around a mountain and the wife slipped and fell and died. She slipped and f- fell down the mountain and died. And the husband said that when his wife died, he finally understood why, he finally understood the anger that you feel when someone close to you dies like that. And he said he, they'd been living with the community for so long that he actually had the urge to just go out and headhunt. Gee. And it like, it finally like clicked in his mind. And that's kind of what anthropologists are aiming to do. So it's kind of like, we want to go into a community or a group, understand what's going on in their world, understand their actions and their beliefs, and then report back on that in a way that's complex, it's nuanced, uh, it provides a full and holistic story. Yeah, man. That's, uh, it's, it's interesting. You've said the word nuanced a couple of times now. And I think <laughs> for me, like our first good conversation, I would say, it's probably our second conversation ever, was it was at uh, Bobby Peel's about an hour before the show. And, and that was one thing that really stood out to me about you. And I was wondering during the conversation, I was like, man, this guy, is, he, he seems very unemotional or emotionally disconnected to a lot of the ideas that he's speaking about, which to mm. me, it, it gave me the impression that you were speaking a lot more calmly, a lot more rationally, that, that you didn't seem like you were necessarily married to any of the ideas that we were talking about. And we were talking about some heavy stuff like COVID and mm. the opinions mm. on COVID and the death rate in South Africa, your homeland. And um, and I thought, man, it'd be quite easy uh, to, to be a bloke in your situation speaking about this stuff and just trying to convert me to whatever it is that you like mm. to whatever uh, way you see this particular idea. And uh, mm. man, just through that last few minutes of you speaking, I realized how lazy I am with so many of the uh, interpretations mm. or understandings of, of everything that I have mm. is because uh, the idea of actually using the example that you just gave, like uh, immersing yourself in a culture to such a point where you understand something which is not only foreign but sort of sounds absurd is uh, mm. like what a beautiful way to develop an understanding of of anything and I, I, mm. I was really curious to pick your brain about because I, I don't think I'm necessarily out there on my own when I say I'm a very lazy thinker and you only have to log on to mm. Facebook for 10 minutes to see that we're all trying to convert each other to see the world the way we see it which I'm sure yeah. is based on more than just facts but emotions and the people we surround ourselves with and the people that we're whose research we're looking at and um, yeah. You know, I'm sure there's another thousand other things that I'm, I'm probably missing just to, to use this example. But like uh, from your perspective, first of all, I was, I was interested to hear you talk on the idea of um, that uh, not necessarily or at least the illusion that you're not married to your ideas. You, you seem to paint that really nicely. And mm. second of all, like uh, I can only imagine how frustrating it must be for a person who's trained in this field to see so many of the lazy kind of thinking errors that, that so many people in our culture make. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that it's <clears throat> in regards to your first question, not being married to your ideas, it, that is hard. 
I think I am still married to a few of my ideas. Um, I'm not like absolved of that entirely. <laughs> um, but something like anthropology, it gives you the insight that the way you conceive of the world is only one way amongst multitude of ways mm. to see the world. Um, and you kind of start to treat your own perspective with a certain degree of suspicion. It's like, well, yeah, I am thinking about the world in this way, but I know from previous experience or previous learning that it might not necessarily be true. You kind of always have a certain degree of critical distance. I mean, not always. I think I still get pulled. It's, that's the thing with, with culture. It is it's so ingrained um, in our everyday lives and the way that we see the world that you can't feel it. It's like a fish swimming in water. You can't. Mm fish has no concept of the water around it. Um, so to say that you're kind of free of that or you can kind of distance yourself from everything is, is, is too big a claim. But um, to not be married to your ideas, it's, it's really important. Um, and to kind of, for me, it's really about critical thinking. And that's a skill that needs to be trained. Like I, before university, I mean, everyone has some degree of critical thinking, but before university, I didn't have it nearly as much. And to, you really need to go through quite intensive training to be able to look at data or information and make an assessment uh, what we say, like a rational assessment or the best possible assessment you can make. And that a, a degree will, especially like an arts or social science degree, will teach you to, you're doing that all the time. You're assessing, you're answering questions. So they give you a question and then you have to find evidence to form your position and um, have to assess so many other people's claims. So that's something that, is definitely trained and practiced like anything, mm. you know, like comedy, that kind of thinking doesn't just come, it really has to be practiced and kept, uh, kept up. Um, and then in regards to your second question, how I perceive other people, I mean, yeah, I think that there is a lot of, I mean, I, I, I'd be, I wouldn't like to use the word lazy because I feel like it's kind of putting the responsibility on um, the individual to critically think. And I think that there is some responsibility that people have to take, but having studied sociology, you realize that people are in, to some degree, a large product of the structures and the systems that they find themselves in. So I think, uh, you know, education and a, like a robust education system is so integral to showing that a population has that ability to 
think decisively and clearly. Um, and I kind of, if I was going to point fingers, I'd really point my fingers at education system. Um, because I do think that it's really, really important now, like as we, we've seen over, you know, past five years, even more, just the kind of lack of, uh, well, increasing political polarization, but also just lack of substantial communication around global political issues or even regional political matters. It just seems to, people can't quite seem to agree with each other. And I think that that comes down to one, being able to communicate and articulate yourself in a way that makes sense. Um, but also um, just kind of detaching yourself from certain positions um, and certain yeah, ways of seeing the world. Mm. It's definitely, it's interesting you pointed to the education system as a, as a place that, um, you know, we probably need to hold, I, I don't know, these are my words, not yours, but hold a little bit accountable to <clears throat> the idea that there's, you know, a lot of polarisation. I say that because I, I don't think like in my whole school life, I went to, you know, I went all the way through uh, from prep to high school, four years of uni, and I don't think any place through there I was, I was taught anything about thinking rationally or helpful ways to break down difficult ideas or mm -hmm. the idea of, of just being open to, you know, other people's ideas and like, like you more, love me more somewhere in between. I was at a school last yeah. year doing a little bit of work and a, a kid got told off because um, he was a year six kid and they had to do some, a project on someone they idolized. And uh, right. he chose to do Donald Trump because he wanted to be okay. a successful businessman and I remember hearing right. the teacher sort of smack him down, essentially going like, this is disgusting. This guy's a, you know, and I know it's a controversial example for a lot of people, but yeah. the guy's the president of the United States. Like there's obviously a little bit we can glean from him, even underneath, you know, he's, he's you know, his bumps and the things that we, we yeah. don't like about him. But I, I thought that was interesting. And rather than just having a conversation with a kid about, you know, what it is that the teacher obviously didn't like. And uh, it, it seemed using this nuanced conversation that you're speaking to me about it seemed like a missed opportunity to be able to actually you know come to a point of if not agreement just understanding on understanding, you know what yeah. this kid uh, admired about him like the differences because chances are probably the things that that the, the kid uh, the teacher didn't like about him there's a good chance in many respects the kid probably didn't like either but I know that yeah. even with my mum I'm down here in Gippsland at the moment and a number of things that um, you know, we might have a disagreement on, and it's so easy to get caught up on the one thing that you disagree with rather than the 15 things you, you have in common. And exactly. I know for myself, I'm really trying to work through that at the moment, especially through this, this COVID period is, uh, mm. you know, I've, I've been so set on, you know, my particular uh, view of events and I've been getting frustrated at, you know, people who disagree with it. And why don't you just see it like me? And, and then it doesn't take long to realize that the people on the complete opposite side of the fence are looking at me the exact same way and going, oh, Tyus, like, why are you so closed-minded? And uh, I thought, okay, surely it can't be that just everyone who disagrees with me is just a complete idiot. There's a good chance I'm the idiot. But it's, yeah. uh, yeah. I just I feel as though there's many missed opportunities. And uh, the idea of, yeah, to go back to my original point of, of school or education being a chance to develop your ability to think critically, there's a there's definitely plenty of room for improvement there, but like uh, using that as an example, what, what kind of things would, would you say with the knowledge that you have in the, in the field that you're in now, 
like what would have been helpful sort of foundational tools for you to have learned at a younger age to, you know, just give you a little bit of a platform to continue learning this stuff from? Yeah, I think that um, one, I think the critical part of coming to a place of understanding is the realization or the understanding of difference. So often schools, I mean, I wasn't educated in Australia, so I'm only speaking from my school experience. Well, I was university educated here, but um, schools don't provide you with a, a rich understanding of how things are different elsewhere. As in, they don't give you an extremely good understanding of how things are different historically. So they give you, say, like in history, I mean, I've spoken to a few students here, you know, they teach you about the Anzacs and, you know, like the wartime heroes and so on. Um, so the first one, is, yeah, the first one is history. They don't, there's so much in history that is rich and provides a interesting lens for which uh, we can understand the world. So for example, um, like in ancient Greece, it was common and encouraged for a man to cry in public, especially. To show emotion in that way was something that was one regarded as normal and two, uh, not celebrated, but valued. Mm. Um, and he was kind of reviewed, uh, regarded as, you know, her heroic or courageous for doing that. I mean, if you think about now, if a man had to cry in public now, it'd just be com viewed completely differently. But that even that little fact changes your perception of the act of crime mm -hmm. as a man. So historically, this, I mean... If you think about the indigenous cultures in Australia, there's just so much there that we can learn from and use to be able to view our lives in a different way. But then obviously cross-culturally. So really trying to hone and establish the understanding in kids from a young age that they are not just, well, one, it's not just us. We're not just in Australia and that is our world. And we have this small history. There are other communities that exist outside of us, one, but two, that those communities are rich, diverse, and complex. And within that complexity and diversity, there is similarities to the way that we understand the world. So that kind of that understanding. I think is a good starting position for compassion and empathy. Um, because when you come, when you meet someone who says now politically opposed, I, you know, I can disagree with their fundamental ideas, but I know that they're not, they're not necessarily just going to be, like inhuman or they're just completely apathetic or 
sociopath, that there's something behind them or there's something within their lives that is driving and motivating them to say and do the things that they do, um, that they are kind of caught within a larger larger structures that are affecting their lives in a particular way. Um, and that that's important, I think, like the kind of understanding of uh, nowadays is like, well, those people believe X and that's because they uh, are Y. I don't know, they might they like this thing or they're ignorant, whatever it might be. Um, and that's kind of where it stops. And that only gets you so far because you'll continue to butt, he butt heads with that person. Um, but a degree like anthropology and sociology, like sociology looking more at structures, so like um, kind of systems, like societal, like, kind of broader economic structures, like how something like the economy going through an economic slowdown would affect certain sectors, what impacts that has on people's livelihoods and their lives at home and so on. So if uh, I think now when someone greets me with like, oh, I believe this and, um, and it's opposed to my view, I kind of have a sense that, well, there's more play than them just being an idiot or mm -hmm. stupid they they live within the system they have their own personal history which is in the context of a broader history and all those factors make them who they are and have resulted in them having that political viewpoint and i think maybe I'm wrong for, the, wrong for doing this, but I kind of assume the better in people. I assume that there's good in people more often than not. And I think that a lot of tension and stress is a result of pain mm. or a lot of anger is a result of stress. So I kind of, if someone confronts me with anger or very strong um, and stubborn views, I kind of think, well, what else is going on there? Mm. You know, they're most likely going through stress. They or they most likely have grown up in a context where that was a normal view. Um, there has to be more in my mind, and you can easily you can find that out with questions. Um, instead of kind of confronting them straight on and opposing them and saying like, okay, well, that's like stupid, like you're stupid. Mm, that's my approach I, usually in those conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably the reason I wanted to talk to you so much. Sorry to cut you off, man. Keep going. No, no, no. But it's just, it, it, you can, I think you can get so much more out of saying, you know, just taking a deep breath and asking them about it, trying to find out why why they and how they came to that position, why and how questions are so important and why and how questions always elicit a lengthier and richer response. You know, why does someone believe that? And they go, well, I just believe it because what you guys have to say is stupid. And it's like, okay, well, like, 
ask them why they came to think that. They don't just naturally think that. They don't just they didn't just have that idea out of nowhere. They're not born with that idea. It's ideas are given to us. That's what cult- culture is. So eventually, if you talk to someone enough and kind of almost like perform the dance of a conversation, you can get to a place where you can start to understand who they are and why they believe the things that they do. And inevitably, and not always, but inevitably, most cases, um, nine times out of 10, you realize that you have something in common with them, that you're dealing with the same pressures, you're living under the similar structures, or you have the same concerns and worries, but they've just been couched in different ideas, in different political positions, or they might've been pulled to a different political position than you were at some point in their lives because of their father, whatever it might've been. And then you have a place of understanding and you have, then you can actually have a conversation. And that's when you're most likely to um, create some kind of uh, change Either, I mean, you might not change their political position or their worldview, but, you know, you might just make them realize that the opposite side of the spectrum is not as bad as they thought it was, or you mm. might realize that. So. Yeah, I reckon the approach of, um, of curiosity rather than defense is a, it's like for selfish reasons, it sounds like a far more appealing way to go into a conversation because I guess it's, it's probably harder to get your back up when you're, when you're curious about a person's belief rather than trying to defend your own. Like, mm. a, like the idea of going into it like it's a, a sword fight is a, like you've got a little bit to lose in that situation, but the idea of going into it like you've got something to learn, which is yeah. honestly, and probably a credit to you, that was part of the reason I wanted to have you on here because I was like, all right, clearly uh, like our first good conversation, I, I just remember being in the middle of the conversation and I was like, man, this guy's asking a lot of questions and he seems real genuine and I wanted to know what was going on there because it was <laughs> a, like I'm happy to throw out the polite, hey, how you going, what's going on, like small talk mm. king, do you know what I mean? But there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a certain degree of that that you can get through until it just gets boring and lame and it's just exhausting. But um, ha- have you found that? Like the idea of just being curious is, I mean, you're a smart guy. Like you obviously leave that conversation with more, more intelligence about where a person sits on a particular view, um, but also more understanding. And, and as you said, a, a realisation that a lot of the time there's at least one thing that you might have in common. Yeah, I think that... Um... Being curious is, I think it's always going to benefit you in most situations. I mean, they do say that curiosity killed the cat, but <laughs> I'm not sure where that came from. He was just unlucky though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but wanting to learn and being interested in people's lives, uh, it's only benefited me. Um, and I think that that's kind of the you know, the shift, well, not necessarily the shift, but something that you can realize is that and something that anthropology made me appreciate is that us as, hu- uh, us as people and humans have so much within us uh, that's fascinating. Like, I think I'm just fascinated by people and the way that they engage in the way that they understand the world um, and how they conceive of things. So like with comedians, I'm always curious to find out how they think about comedy and 
you know, why they want to do it and what, mo- what drives them to do it. It's so like with you, um, you drive quite a far way to, to get to comedy gigs. Um, and to me, I just, that just stuck in my mind. I remember you, you had a joke about it and it stuck in my mind. And I thought, you know, why would someone drive an hour and a half to do a comedy gig? You know, what kind of is motivated, motivating them? Well, how do they have the kind of resilience or tenacity to do that week in, week out? Mm. Um, and that stuck with me. And I'm, I'm, I was just curious about it because I think, I mean, you know, the kind of comics journey is it's a tough one and to constantly need to build up the resilience and motivation to kind of stay on the horse. Um, and that's something that I'm curious about. How, how are other people doing it? How do people mentally kind of stay resilient in the face of a very kind of adverse industry? Um, that's something that I'm interested in anthropologically that that's kind of what my honors was on is like how do we what motivates people to be resilient in structures that are very difficult to navigate mm-hmm. um so that's why i spoke to you and that's uh, when i you know find out even a small detail about someone like you're you're a father you're in your 30s okay well that must be difficult like trying to do comedy and be a father and run a family and make money and all that that's hard but it's all so fascinating to me um and i want to find that out so curiosity yeah it's kind of the starting point um to wanting to really listen to people and really gain something from them and i i love learning from people um in fact my partner always says that uh, she says that i kind of uh, instead of reading books i, I read people i mm, that's a great way I'm to actually, put it. yeah i see that i'm already. a I'm a, I'm a chronic starer i'm terrible at staring um <laughs> from a young age i was my mom always used to like tell me off for staring at people in shopping centers and um i'm actually i'm trying to like uh, rein it in a bit. Um, <laughs> I've never noticed it for what it's worth. I feel like yeah. uh, maybe uh, unless I just appreciate where you're coming from so much, I don't notice it. But I uh, I promise to pull you up if I ever notice you staring. <laughs> but I've never noticed that about you. Yeah, it's funny though, man. Yeah. People watching is a is definitely an interesting thing. I enjoy it to a well, hopefully a, a healthy degree without it becoming creepy. But what you've uh, <laughs> you, you've dipped your toe on the other side of that line a couple of times, have you? Oh, trying yeah. to trying yeah. to read that person. No, I've been I've been told off by. Um... <laughs> You grouchy men in <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so for me when I when I see people, I'm kind of I'm I'm reading, I'm like analyzing little thing things about them. Okay, what are they wearing? Who are they with? What kind of conversations are they making? What you know? How do they move their hands? It's not like a, a you know romantic like Sherlock Holmes. Like I can figure out their lives. I don't know if my observations are necessarily accurate, but I've just, I kind of make up little stories about them. Or I put together, yeah, a narrative about who they are. And then if I get the opportunity to speak to them, you know, I want to find out. I want to 
find out, okay, well, what is this person about? And um, so curiosity definitely is a starting point there of, of learning, you know. Mm. Curious people, they learn, hopefully. Um, and that, that is so important now where there's, yeah, there's a perpetual lack of understanding and we don't have, you know, things like social media don't really have, it's not necessarily the platform or we don't have a platform really where we can do that. It takes a lot of energy, conservative energy to do that. I mean, I've been caught up in common threads that have gone on for ages and eventually they become just too exhausting to mm. partake in anymore because I feel like I'm hitting um, my head um, against a brick wall. So uh, to try and create those kind of conversations, that's another whole thing entirely, but you can at least do it in your everyday life when you meet people. Yeah, man. You were telling me about a guy the other day and you actually, I think you, you gave me a book recommendation that I wrote down. I can't mm. remember the, the name of it off the top of my head, but I think it was a... Amusing uh, Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. Yeah. So amusing was this guy, was the bloke who wrote that, I remember you saying he was a, a professor or a teacher in New York, if I'm not muddling him up with yeah. another recommendation no. you gave me. Yeah, yeah, no, cool. He but, is, yeah. Uh, was he a, is he a, a person in a, a particular field of anthropology or is he a lecturer on the subject or the, the craft of what it is that we're speaking about? So he is actually a lecturer in, or he was a lecturer in communications, meaning communications, which was my other major when I was an undergraduate. Um, but he does look, he doesn't necessarily use that method that I'm talking about, um, but he does look at humans and human culture, especially political culture. Um, he writes uh, from a kind of what they would call like a, a techno determinist perspective. So he is a, he's big on tech, like mm. as in not like Silicon Valley tech, but like how technology and especially media technology shapes the world, shapes how we relate to each other, shapes how we see the world, uh, shapes how we see ourselves. Um, so yeah, the book that I was telling you about was really him tracking how media all the way from oral cultures to print media to books or uh, books and then print media in newspapers and all the way through to television so he wrote this book in the 80s um oh really yeah yeah he wrote this book in the 80s how about how those media forms have changed society and what kind of culture we have now or even political culture. So the title Amusing Ourselves to Death is basically his argument is that television uh, created a world where entertainment has become the kind of the name of the game. As in, and I mean, that kind of seems obvious or intuitive, like, oh, yeah, well, there's plenty of entertainment on television, but it's more about, like, even politics itself or even the political sphere is no longer something that's kind of necessarily taken seriously, but it's, it's just, like, perpetual entertainment. It's information that we... <sighs> 
it's not vapid, but it doesn't really have any hold on us. Like information, say, in an era where books were the main media form. So like when books were the main media form, if you were living in a small town, say like in early settled America, if you heard news that uh, your local mayor was changing uh, the shop times or changing policies to make goods more expensive, people would take that information and actually feel really affected by it and had some form of or ability to engage with that. And they would, you know, there might be a meeting amongst the town and so on, or they might, people would kick up a fuss. Now, well, this is Neil Postman's argument saying that television and also print media presents us information that's not necessarily relevant to our lives anymore, our immediate lives. So you and I might be able to get uh, news from San Francisco Mm -hmm. about uh, a juice company that started up. How is that information relevant to us? It's not. We don't, it doesn't affect our lives. And therefore that information is just kind of like a, it's just a, it's a filament. It's kind of just engaging us for a short while. It's just inter- entertaining us. And he kind of, he goes more into like kind of the structure of television and how they used to have to fill certain time slots. There was ad- advertisements between the time slots and you had to make it kind of eye-catching and engaging. And he says like that kind of brought about a period of, presidents no longer being judged on their ability to articulate themselves and speak rationally about their policies and provide a coherent and um, complex view of their plan to uh, lead the country. It was more about, you know, who could be most convincing on screen. So like, for example, Ronald, Ronald Reagan, I think it was, uh, was an actor. Yeah. Like not, he wasn't acting as a president, but he was mm-hmm. an actor before he became president. So his kind of personality suited the, the, the medium of television or the media of tele, uh, television. Um, and Neil Postman's argument is that, that, at least in his day, and I think now you could say it as well, it's just be kind of becoming the name of the game that, media forms like television um, have produced or lent itself to this kind of entertainment-driven culture where politics is kind of who can be the biggest and the best and the most convincing and the most charismatic president rather than uh, the most intellectually sound, the most empathetic, the... uh, you know, the most rational. Mm. Um, that's, that's what that, that book's about. That's, a, um, that's an interesting point. It's an interesting point, the idea of um, like entertainment and just eye-catching sort of attributes or qualities being the, uh, the factor that draw a lot of people in. And I, I was never interested. Like you could have asked me anything about American politics in 2015, the day before Trump was elected, and I would have had no idea. And then I think yeah. just due to absolute shock that he was elected because I'd just been told by every media outlet that it wasn't going to happen, 
I, I just got fascinated. I always say that to me, like Donald mm. Trump's the uh, the Conor McGregor of American politics. Like I have no oh, real yeah, interest in sure. UFC. Like I'm not yeah. that interested in but but I see Conor McGregor wearing like a, a massive thick pea coat and just talking smack. And I go, okay, I have to watch. Like I could have yeah, seen really, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is, which is a really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's tantalizing. It's tantalizing. And that's, I think, especially now, like uh, people often talk about this, like how fast moving our media is, how quickly you can sift through posts and videos and the user has control over how they consume media to some degree, more so than television. I mean, television, you could flick through a few channels, um, but social media is it's user controlled. So if you can't keep a user looking at your content for X amount of time, you're in trouble. Mm. Um, and that's, uh, I think like those big personalities like Conor McGregor, I mean, same as me, I was, when Conor McGregor came to prominence, I was living in South Africa. Like I wasn't even in the same country, but we both knew about him. He, mm. you know, friends of mine were, thought he was great. They loved him. Suddenly interested in boxing, getting boxing gloves. I mean, I know he does UFC, but like, yeah. um, and that's those kind of personalities sell. So, but no one really knows what Conor McGregor is actually like as a person. We've seen a whole bunch of media, mediated images about him. I know there's like a documentary and he's talking about like, oh, how it was so hard growing up in Ireland. And like he had, had that kind of like beast mentality of fighting through and he's always motivated, kept his eye on the target and so on. Um, but that's all we've got of, got of him. It's just mediated segments or videos or images. And they cre- he's created a, a persona there's definitely a full team behind him, you know. Yeah. There's a PR. There's a PR team behind him, like um, someone like Barack Obama, for example. Um, when he came into presidency in the White House, he increased the PR team of the White House, like his campaign, by a few hundred people. Like he like employed like 200 new PR specialists. Um, and if you think about Barack Obama, like when you think of like the charming smile and, um, you know, the jokes, the humor. Um, but I mean, he had terrible immigration policies. He condoned the bombing of um, Yemen. He... I mean, he when he came into presidency, you know, he or yeah, sorry, yeah, he. I mean, he was the one that really signed the papers to bail out the bankers uh, and the, the fall of Wall Street. So there's a lot of policies with Barack Obama, and I mean, likewise with Donald Trump, and likewise with I mean, Hillary Clinton sold arms to Saudi Arabia for ages that were used in Afghanistan, like that were arms that were used by the Taliban in Afghanistan. People get angry when you try um, to talk about this kind of stuff. It's a- <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is kind of this is kind of stuff that Julian Assange revealed, and that's why he's in big trouble now. The, mm-hmm. the Australian journalist. Um, I mean, all. All the uh, American presidents and the um, Australian presidents, they've put through so many terrible policies. Like, um, 
recently, the Australian government put through a policy where they've changed it so that now that they can, they can keep uh, asylum seekers on Manus Island indefinitely. They have the, the power to keep them in de- detained there indefinitely. They don't even have to tell them when uh, they're going to be released. Like imagine being detained on an island and you don't know when you're going to leave. Like you have no sense of the future. You, you have no sense of when you're going to get out. Like those kind of policies are all swept on the rug and all kind of, yeah, I mean, this is all very complex and I'm <laughs> sounding kind of conspiratorial now, but um, the president's personas and the kind of images that we see of them are different to the reality of their policies. So, and that media does have a role to play in that. The kind of forms that we have, like social media, we needs to be intention grabbing. It needs to be able to consume quickly, all lend itself to that kind of political world. Um, and it's the same what we're saying with like conversations where you can have open discussions. I mean, I'm sure that there are, you know, so on like Reddit or um, other online forums or Facebook groups, so you can have a discussion with someone um, about a political issue. But to really, you really need institutions created that, facilitate that, that really create an adequate space for, for people to reach a place of understanding. And I mean, this is fairly commonly spoken about, but social media platforms produce the kind of political polarization and misunderstanding that's happening these days, um, or at least ex- exacerbate it, I think, that those political disparities have always been there, um, but they've just been kind of supercharged. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, man. There's a there's a lot there. I, I swear we could uh, we could uh, literally I could talk to you for another three hours, and I'm sure we'd have plenty <laughs> more to talk about. But I've uh, I've got in the back of my mind. I told you we'd talk for an hour, and been gone an hour fifteen, and uh, my wife's out okay. shopping with my little man at the moment, so I know she'll be knocking at the door soon. So. Maybe we'll yeah. um we'll end round one there, but uh, but would love to touch base again. Obviously, I'll see you out and about. Sure. But um, if you if you're ever keen to do a round two and uh you sort of dig a little deeper, man, I'd I'd love to do it. Maybe I could uh, we'll plan a time where uh I don't have a, a cut off. <laughs> we can we can talk for a couple of hours, but uh but dude, uh, as always, great to sit down and chat with you, and, and thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem at all. It was it was great to come on. Mm-hmm.